From CGRU, we're about to play. I'm Eric Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, part of Sony goes to sleep, and games become harder over four sets of headsets. Then we give it up for Canada's favorite fighting French elves. Later in the show, a man tries to play his memory of Final Fantasy VII, and another game world falls apart in Pony Island. But first, a game that was handcrafted from the ground up. Literally. How you feel about a game can have a lot to do with aesthetics. The way a game looks can color what you focus on as you play. It can determine what makes a game worth for the player. We're going to prove that with one company's approach to game design, that is largely through the sense of aesthetic. You, you've both mentioned that you enjoy working with your hands. Um, when did that start for the both of you? Um, for me, that started, uh, well, I guess back at art college. Like All my work that I created back then had some handmade element to it. I was always screen printing and sketching and um and I've always been, you know, using that with computers. So so that combined pretty well. As soon as I uh, got to university and could combine that with digital stuff, I was making games and I was using the same techniques that I knew. So um for example, my university project used screen prints as backgrounds and I did rotoscoping for the characters. Um and so it's just always been there this this thread and relatively recently that moved towards making actual models. So it moved from making illustrations and scanning them in to thinking, wait a minute, how could photography and, you know, using lighting and that kind of thing add extra depth? For me, I, um, as a programmer, uh, which uh, programming can often be very uh, dry. I, I like making things that come alive and are interactive and, and, and feel interesting. You're hearing Luke Whitaker and Daniel Fountain. They work at State of Play where they make video games by hand. I think when you make stuff by hand, you get a far better communication with the audience. At least that's how it feels to me. Um, it feels like I can get my ideas down a lot quicker. We don't like starting with a clinical computer space to work on because you have to inject so much into that and artificially rough it up um, that you see you could spend your whole time doing that rather than just going with the flow and for example if you were to make a cube in 3d studio max or something like it you could make a cube very simply and it would everyone would make the same one it would be very quick and it would be very clinical all the lines would be perfect but if you ask the same people to make one out of paper everyone's is going to be slightly different and to an extent represent their personality so that's that theory taken to you know taken to extreme with Luminous City you really you're seeing us there on the screen Luke and Dan, along with the rest of State of Play, made two games in this style. The first was Loom. It's a game where you play as a girl looking to restore power to her home. To do that, she has to solve puzzles and eventually turn the lights back on in her home. Luke and his team built the house with craft materials. They drew a lock that you have to open. They carefully cut pieces of cardboard and glued them together for stairs. State of Play's next game was like Loom, but far larger and more complicated. Where Loom fit in the suitcase, Lumino City needed to be moved into the back of a van. Okay, so uh, the original loom, that house, is a half a meter long itself, um, and the whole set, including the garden, is only about a meter long. Um, uh, to put that into context with Lumino City, Lumino City is an entire city. Uh, it's three meters long, about two and a half, three meters high, um, but that contains the whole city, so that it's incredibly detailed at the same 
in time. It all everything uses laser cutting, so every little miniature banister is has been cut out. And, so it's much smaller scale than new. Yeah. Building a game from cardboard has its own challenges, like taking care of a giant model or making sure everything worked before they started building it. We actually built the entire game with crude sketches first. Um, like most games, prototype, but we we had to prototype the whole thing in order to know what we were building first. So almost no work was done on final models before we had worked out what needed to be on the screen and where it needed to be and what angles it needed to be visible from. Because once we set something in stone and made a model or even filmed that model, there was no way we could change that. So the entire game was playable a good two years before the game was released. Uh, We had testers in and that kind of thing, uh, just to make sure that we knew what we were doing before we finalised it. And in terms of the puzzles, we always knew that these things were going to be made by hand, so we wouldn't go off on one making puzzles that would be physically impossible to make or wouldn't make sense in the world. I think that's one thing we've always, we always tried to make work with this. Everything makes sense in the world. So for example, you'll come across an old 1950s computer which uses punch cards. Those punch cards you physically have to punch, put in and see what um, result you get out of it. Is there any concern of basically how the, the animation is going to work out when you have these models that they're, they're ideally going to work out in a certain way, so the puzzles kind of have to go through a certain system? Yeah, there's concern. <laughs> basically, there's, yeah, that's a good word for the entire development <laughs> process. Just concern throughout the whole thing. Um, the, 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 while we were building the models, we were working in collaboration with each other, and I think we're quite familiar with the software and processes we were using, so we'd... we'd, we'd we constantly try and work out while we were designing the models how it would operate in the animation. Um, so when it comes to more technical puzzles that have uh, blur or um, shadowy areas or depth of uh, perspective, that kind of thing, we all have to think. We have to think about all these things because once we add a um, artificial um, superimposed element to a background photograph, it has to match. So we we had to think about all these things while we were. Um, designing mm. most of the puzzles. Um, a lot of the time we were good at planning. So, for example, the pin, there's a pinball puzzle where, you know, you can pick up the pins and move them around wherever you want on the board, and the ball can hit it and it lights up, and that had to be photo real. So that involved taking dozens and dozens of photographs of a pin in multiple positions with the light on, with the light off, then it had to be split up into those different parts so that the ball could go in front of it and behind it. Oh, like all sorts of crazy stuff, that one. Once you start making something photorealistic, you basically have no margin for error because yeah. it stands out like a... Oh, God, yeah. Like, there's loads of work that's gone into this that people won't even see. I was, I'm glad you brought up the, the pinball machine because that's one of my favorite just images from the game. Um, when one, where, How did that, that one come to mind? It just all sort of came together when thinking about the environment that was going to be in. I really loved the uh, the painting Nighthawks by Edward Hopper, and that's that directly inspired the diner scene. You could probably see it with the light, you know, the the mood of that piece. Um, so that sort of 1950s Americana, I suppose. Okay. It was it was an interesting flip on the idea of a pinball machine to us um, because it's. Instead of it being to do with flippers, we were like, well, that turns into it. That would be an action game if it was. 
how can we make this a puzzle game? And you can do that by moving the pins and turning it into a sort you know, you have to get the pins in the right order to bounce the ball up to the jackpot at the top. The, the, the thing about the pinball machine also has a bunch of lights that have to pop up in the middle there. So was that a lot of that in post? We, we actually photographed all of the lights lighting up, all of the shadows and all of the ambient light. And uh, so all, all of it's based on real photographs. Mm. It, it, it's kind of like swapping between photographs where appropriate. And some, some of the photographs are cut out to mask the ball when it's behind. Some of the photographs are lighting up and lighting down. Yeah. Yeah. There's a real filament bulb in there, basically. Yeah. That would light up the table and it would light up the pin. And so we would take the light on the table and lay that over the table and we could overlay the pin lit up over that, the board. That, that was a much harder job than we thought it would be. We thought it'd be a lot easier than a yeah. lot of layers to consider, but worked out. Probably like a month on that one puzzle, you know. <laughs> Playing Lumino City, it's hard not to think, why am I here? The game won a BAFTA Games Award for Artistic Achievement, so people clearly liked it. Lumino City is beautiful. But does that beauty overshadow the parts that make it a game? Maybe, and maybe not. This isn't supposed to be a gimmick. You know, this place wouldn't exist unless it was built by hand. Um, So for us, the two things go right hand in hand. Like, you know, it wouldn't be the same game if this was done with drawings, or it wouldn't be the same game if it was made in a a computer model. Um, So... I don't know. I d- they're not easily separate separate to us. If people, um, and I think that's what you know. When we get positive response from it, it's from people who just sort of appreciate the entire thing. You know that every, we have linked the puzzles as much as possible to the physicality of the space and all that kind of thing. And yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's such. Um, it's designed to hang together as a whole piece, and for things not to be separate. I guess the real test of it for me was when we've taken it to exhibitions or conferences and to see people enjoying the puzzles uh, is really nice. Um, and what's quite funny at conferences is often people will be playing the puzzle and quite enjoying it and not really realising that they're real models. What Dan describes is that when they go to a conference and they put that thing on the table, they put the model there, and they have a person playing it the person will look at the model, look back at the game, look at the model, and not quite having realized that the world of a game was fabricated to begin with, that someone had made that and put it together. And maybe it does put that connection there. And for Dan and for Luke, it's a really nice thing to see. Someone literally make that connection right in front of them. Luke Whitaker and Daniel Fountain scavenge together Lumino City. They work for State of Play. The game is available on iOS, Mac, and Windows. That model still exists, by the way, and they are seriously looking for a place to put it. We have some photos of it, how it looks now and in its prime in our show notes. You know, it's sitting here and it's it needs to be somewhere, so uh, it's it would be better that it's out there and being enjoyed by people. So consider this a shout-out to anyone who wants to display this. Um, just get in touch.
into the news for this time around. Um, what's <laughs> a week? Yeah, yeah, sure. This, this cycle. Yeah, this cycle. We're uh, trapped in eternal loop of video game news. The uh, what is the so what is going on with Sony right now? Because we all love this little device called the PlayStation Vita. It's this mm-hmm. cute little little muskrat. Of it's a, a little robot dog. Yep. That you hang out with and feed robot treats. Now, um, when was the last time you played a PlayStation Vita? Would you say? Relatively recently, because I reviewed Persona 4 Dancing All Night. Yeah, okay, but when was the last... That was a year... That was like still like six that months ago. That was like November. Yeah, So, but it's been a while. Yeah. Oh, it's like, definitely been a while. Like, I'm sure you've played a game or played... You've attempted to play a video game on a computer more recently yep, than that. Absolutely. On a PlayStation 4? I played Minesweeper. Yeah, there you day. go. Yeah, there you go. I stream Minesweeper. I'm, the, I'm Canada's biggest Minesweeper. Minesweeper Minesweeper streamer. My, I'm a Minesweeper. Now, it's... Including both in the PSP and the Vita, it looks like the p- p- Sony's portable scene. They're just kind of wrapping that whole thing up. Yeah, it's they're putting they're putting putting it to bed. The uh, so first of all, the PSP storefront is finally down. You will no longer be able to buy games and other PSP content. I don't know what other stuff you would buy on a PSP: movies, PSN avatars. To be fair, they're like they kept making PSP games for a strangely long length of time. Yeah, the P- the PSP was relatively popular, but now you won't be able to buy any of that stuff from within the PSP ecosystem. You'll have to venture onto the wild of the internet uh, to buy video games and UMD films from Sony's online store, and then go to your PSP downloads menu to then download that stuff. So it's not totally inaccessible. It's not, but you're not. You know, it's one of things where you have to like hook your PSP up to your computer. That's kind of weird. It's just to be fair, of... that's how most people were just getting this stuff pirated anyway. Well, yeah, but like if you were trying to be a legitimate PSP owner, it's basically it's all it's very difficult now and will be almost impossible shortly. While the PSP has been for a long time, if you want to examine a fresher corpse, uh, you that speaks of Sony's Ted Cruz esque desire to kill portables <laughs> and ha- and leave cryptographic notes as to their true identity. Ted Cruz is Zodiac Killer. You must only look to the Vita or play- slash PlayStation TV. So, the PlayStation TV, as it's known here, yeah. because the Vita TV makes no goddamn sense. Nah, I mean, it makes more sense than PlayStation TV. I think PlayStation TV makes much less sense than Vita TV. Well, what's the, what's the, what's the PlayStation TV versus their actual, uh, like, TV service? Because they have a TV service. PlayStation like View. PlayStation View. Okay. PlayStation TV has nothing to... PS TV has nothing to do with television, aside from the fact that you That's use it true. on your television. Vita te- TV is a Vita you play on your television. But it wouldn't even... I think the, the thing that would make the most sense is PlayStation Vita TV. Or well, PS yeah, Vita I mean, TV. cut the baby in half, yeah. right? Like, Solomon's Wisdom. Vita TV doesn't mean anything, unless shoot I'm getting, ba- like... Unless shoot it is the baby a- seven times in the back and leave a cryptograph. Yeah. <laughs> Solomon's Wisdom. <laughs> That's a that's a is that like the Solomon for like God Hand like the uh... no that's Ted Cruz's Zodiac. Killer. <laughs> oh, sorry, I I wasn't following you there. You have to send a letter to the San Francisco Chronicle telling him that it was you who killed the PlayStation Vita, and here's the PlayStation Vita shirt tail. How do you think he's gonna do in this, this the California primary? The PlayStation Vita? Yeah, not well. <laughs> it, it, it hasn't been running a great campaign. Um. So okay. So now in October we talked about a Sony executive saying that Sony was not working on any more Vita games, that there were none in the pipeline, and now Sony has officially stopped all shipments of the Vita TV, their micro console version of the Vita, to Japanese retailers. Yeah. So and they're they're doing that. Why? Why is that? Uh, why are they disappearing it? I mean, there's no specific reason they gave other than the fact that probably they're getting rid of the Vita TV. Like, it was not a very successful... You will notice that very recently the PlayStation Vita TV was... Uh, prices on it were slashed. I personally own one that I got for $20 <laughs> when it was released at $100. Uh, and that is because Sony also stopped shipments to North American and European retailers in December. 
The uh, I mean, it's and not... everybody wanted to get rid of their stock. Yeah, because like that thing one didn't sell well, and two didn't even work with all PS Vita games no. because anything that required touch controls, because the PS Vita just uses a PlayStation Three controller, uh, didn't work. Nope, didn't work unless you have a PlayStation Four controller. Yeah, so that's insane. And why would you, why would you make that restriction? But if not, like, hey, here's a small adapter for your PlayStation Three controller because or something. The, why is because it is a twenty dollar machine that plays Spelunky. That's true. That you got for free because you have PS Plus. That's literally the primary use for the Vita TV. Could you? You couldn't even use Netflix on that thing, could you? No. That's that's a. I mean, at some point they should have just like. I have gone a Roku, to Roku and a Vita TV hooked up to my television. Yeah, at some point it's just like you should just get a. What what should have happened is they should have partnered with Roku yeah. and just said, "Hey, what if this play PS Vita games?" It's bizarre too because you load up the Netflix app and it just won't work. Yeah, because it is a PlayStation Vita. Yeah, it's like, like it's literally just the guts of a Vita they took the screen and the buttons out of. Can it connect to the internet? Yeah. So you can why? download games. Why? I don't know. I literally cannot tell you why this is the choice they made with it. That's bizarre. I mean, so... I my only thing I can think of is that they didn't want to bite into PlayStation Three and or Four sales because that's your Netflix device, obviously. Well, yes, but like, like Sony's they... televisions have Netflix built in as well. Yeah, I, to be yeah, I, to be fair, they have sold off their television department. That's true. So if there's only now one Sony product that can give you the Netflix experience you've been desiring. And that's um, that's like a refrigerator, right? Yeah, it's their, it's new, a refrigerator. their new smart refrigerator. It's their new yeah. headphones. Yeah, it's uh, a phablet. Yeah, well, it's a fr- well, the f- the f- is a fridge. <laughs> okay, so uh, with all of that out of the way, is it fair to say that like Sony's experiments in the the, the portable space was a success, or that it was? I definitely wouldn't call it a failure. No, it was definitely not. That's the thing. So the PSP was not a failure. Yeah, th- it was. It did not do well in North America at all. But it did really well in Japan. Incredibly well in Japan. But in Japan, it had Monster Hunter, which was very popular in Japan and not here, for various multiplayer reasons, and also didn't have really racist advertising. Oh man, do you remember when that white girl grabbed that black girl? Yeah, that was bad. Remember that squirrel said, uh, "Squirrel, please." Yeah. Wow, their advertising was bad. Yeah. This was, like, right around the time with the PlayStation 3, I remember, they had, like, those inexplicable baby ads. Yes. It was, like, they wanted to do, like, guerrilla marketing, and it turned out, no. Like, you just well, ha- I mean, they literally had a gorilla write their advertising. It yeah. It was really bad. Like, it was it was a sort of a nightmare. So the PSP just sort of, like, and then the PSP completely just had no games and completely fizzled out in North America. Whereas it, did, it got a second win in Japan thanks to Monster Hunter. And I I think it did have more games over there. The problem is just became more. It, it had a, a lot, lot of, of visual novels. Yeah, a lot it, of visual novels and dating sims, and those don't translate super well. And also, code. they're incredibly like those are incredibly expensive to bring over because they're just localization. They're just localization, and not to mention a lot of them were very like. You got a lot of like Senran Kagura type stuff where it's right. just girls not wearing a lot of clothes. Yeah, it's a lot of like weird arrow stuff. At a certain point, Walmart's not going to stock these games. Yeah, you know, and that's that's a problem. Um. No. I mean, how do they stock like how do they stock them in Japan? Is it just like the comic cat stuff or yeah, they, Japan will just stock that stuff anywhere. Like Akihabara okay. will just like you can put that wherever in Akihabara. Fair enough. So you right. don't need, they don't need to be approved by Sarah. They're equivalent to the ESRB. Well, I mean, they do need to be approved by Sarah, but like anybody will sell a Sarah Z game. Oh, okay. Like, so like Yodobashi, is... Yodobashi camera will not, but like the you know Super Potato will. So who cares? Right. Fair enough. So like if you live in a major city, you can have access to that stuff. Yeah, exactly. If you live in Tokyo, right? Because like remember that approximately eighty percent of Japan's like game playing audience lives in around the, to- the greater Tokyo area. That's, yeah, I mean, that is totally insane. Because so, like, that's how as, densely populated that country as is. As long as you live in Tokyo, you're fine. So... If you live, like, in a random city in Hokkaido, maybe not so you much. You probably just get it off Amazon, though, at that point. The, uh, but, but, meanwhile, I think the Vita, however, was probably an unequivocal flop. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with Evita largely ended up being the, the cost of entry. Because I think, like, what happened is... Well, okay, well, yeah, please go ahead. My, my, my theory is, with the Vita, it is, like, when you get to a point of, like, critical mass when it comes to portable devices and the uh, 3D, mm-hmm. when you have to work really hard on this product that has a limited audience by definition, it's a PlayStation Vita, it's, like, it's does super well, but it's kind of expensive. You need a ton of accessories to get going on it. Um, so you're already kind of like lowering your audience to begin with. And then you charge that audience like $60 games, or I think it was like 40 to 60. 40 to 60, yeah. Yeah, uh, $60 games. Um, those games end up being having to be like roughly the quality of an early PS3 game. Yeah. That's a lot of effort. It's a huge amount of money from a development standpoint. And then not to mention that like from a like just a consumer standpoint, like it was $250, and so was the 3DS at the time, but the 3DS didn't require a $60 memory card. And a $60 memory card didn't come in the box? Yeah. Like and like that memory card was almost required to just get the firmware installed. Yeah, like the 3DS was at launch a three hundred dollar sync for a game for a system and a game, whereas the Vita was approximately a three hundred and sixty dollar sync. Yeah, which like, was crazy. It's kind of unthinkable. Like the way that thing launched is it's to the point that like when you buy people get confused to this day over like oh hey I bought a Vita why doesn't it work yeah like it's um. Be- because they have the proprietary memory card, I mean, it's, which I find is bizarre. Because every other like their their PlayStation Three and PlayStation Four are notorious for not notorious. They're, they're great for just like you can plug in any hard drive to yeah. that thing. People like replace their their PlayStation hard drives with SSDs all the time. Sony's handheld division is such a different beast, I think, than their consumer electronics division. It has to be their Japan division. Yeah. Like, PlayStation 4 was very clearly designed by Europe and uh, North America. North America. But I think the the thing with the Vita is that the Vita, listen, the Vita smacks of the Walkman, smacks of the Ericsson, smacks of the of the um, and even the Ericsson's not a Japanese product. That's a it, Swedish thing. Yeah, but it's it's massive all the of the of the PSP of just like these things with proprietary software and memory that hampers them. Remember that the Vita had not only proprietary Sony Duo memory sticks, but also the UMD. Anyway, speaking of home electronics, yep, uh, these are definitely going to someone's home. Someone somewhere. It's uh, we're gonna ride. We're gonna pony back up. We're gonna get on the saddle. I'm getting on my VR saddle. We're gonna strap in. I'm riding a giant Oculus Rift right now. <laughs> you were more enthusiastic the first time. I was much more <laughs> enthusiastic the first time. Well, now I'm just lazing around, riding my v- Oculus Rift through the ranch, looking so, at the VR pastures and what 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 the future might bring. <laughs> the HTC Vive is now open for pre-order. <laughs> um, the Steam, it's one of the, the first Steam VR integrated headsets, and it can be yours for the low, 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 low price of more money than you could possibly afford. $799.99 American, which is to say $30 billion Canadian dollars. Yeah. By the time this episode comes out, and by the time the, it is available for purchase, it may be, in fact, like the Canadian dollar may have turned into the yen, and it's yeah. just a, it's a, it's a, 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 do- a dollar a cent. Like, yeah. We cannot, literally, we could not tell you what the Canadian price is right now, because by the time between when we say this and when this episode releases it will have changed like we'll have gotten it totally wrong yeah so we so for all we know the HTC Vive is just unlimited dollars from yeah. the, it's it's 7000 gold kukuran yeah at least that many yeah. so 
Uh, if you go to the, the Pure Order page, it says your shipment comes with a headset, two wireless controllers, and room-scale movement sensors. Which were, as we found out uh, a couple weeks ago, literal bars that you stick in your room, to tr- like high up in your room, and screw into your walls so that the, the Vive knows where you are. Yeah, much much like uh, wiretap cameras. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, aqu- much like the Zodiac Killer. Yeah. <laughs> You also get a copy of Job Simulator, Fantastic Contraption, and Tilt Brush, the latter of which I do not know what it no, is. No, neither do I. Um, I think it's just a arts program where you get to paint in a canvas. I believe so. Uh, Fantastic Contraption is just a Rube Goldberg thing. Yep, and uh, Job Simulator is exactly what it sounds like. It's just, you. Pre- I think you stand up and you pretend to do me later. Yep. Fun! <laughs> uh, v- uh, great for VR. Great for VR. VR, where you could do real things in a headset. So... <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the best. This is the future we've always wanted. Yeah. So the thing that I find really interesting about the the HTC Vive, though, is that you can receive calls in it. Yes. And it has full Android, I believe, integration. Yeah, full Android integration. And, I mean, HTC commonly known for making their phones, most recently the HTC One, uh, which is their like, kind of like their landmark phone for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, the uh, the thing with this is that what makes it interesting is that you you can receive calls and you can receive notifications. So I was listening to the Giant Bombcast, and one thing they brought up that was super interesting was that uh, this actually allows people to reach you while you're yep. in VR in ways that you might not perhaps be able to, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to like at least it's like not someone like shaking you and yes. saying like get out of the the, the glasses, stop but they wearing have to, this. But they have to call you from across the room and say, Armand, uh, we gotta go. Armand, it's you have to. Go to the you meeting. have to you have to get out of job simulator and go to your real job. <laughs> but there is a there's a third competitor. We've talked a lot about the HTC Vive and the two podcasts ago. Um, the one we never got to really is the Hololens. Right. So what is up with the Hololens? So the Hololens also has a price and ship date, so it gets to join. So okay, the, but before we get into oh that, well, what is it? so the Hololens is of course Microsoft's entry into the uh, gl- gl- goggles you wear on your face uh, race, yeah. the face race. And what they do is they augment reality as opposed to create virtual reality environments. So you'll see the world around you, but also, like, Conker is there. Okay. And he's your friend. So Con- and he tells you that he loves you. Conker is a squirrel? He is a squirrel. And he's from, like, a N64 video game? Yes. And that's what Rare is doing their time now? Uh, Rare did not make it. It was made by a company, I believe, called Abusu. Oh, okay. And Abusu is just or using, or it's just using this, this nice Microsoft IP? Yes. Okay, cool. To make a HoloLens game. Is it a straight-up game? It's a pl- uh, platformer that generates levels based on your environment. Okay, sure. So That seems not like a great idea. No. Uh, because that that really leaves it up to, A, what your environment is, and, B, if your environment's super complicated, it turns out you just made the hardest platformer yeah. imaginable. There's a reason why they... they you just ma- got to take your HoloLens outside and just, like, check out the park. Just to, just to run. Just run. There's a reason why they make, like, Audio Surf, which is generated off music. Yeah. Like, that is a pretty simple game that has fairly simple implications. And you have to, like, eventually you still, if you want to be good at Audio Surf, you have to, like, tailor pick your playlist. Yeah. The idea of just random environments, like, that seems crazy. That it, be... I feel like it's going to lead to some crazy, crazy stuff. However, uh, Young is Conquer is the name of the game. Oh, It's okay. called Young Conquer. Much like the rap hero, Young Conquer. Exactly. Uh, that is one of, one of a few things coming with your... Uh, Hololens pre-order, so you get the uh, you get the you get the headset. Okay. You also get Young Conquer. You get Fragments, which is sort of a crime drama game where you do the investigating part of a Phoenix Wright game. So it's like a pixel hunt in your office. 
Okay. Sounds like a great thing that everybody's always wanted. Uh, there's Robo Raid, which is sort of that hall, that uh, game that we saw at the announcement video, the one where you shoot the robots through your walls. Right. There's also Hollow Skype, which is just called Skype, but Hollow Skype. <laughs> Hollow Studio, which I guess sort of a, v- a video editing thing. Hollow Tour, which lets you take tours of things holographically. And Actiongram, which sort of lets you place 3D objects in your environment for, quotes holographic storytelling. And Armand, how much do you think all this is going to cost you? Uh, okay, so I'm like I'm thinking this is like a consumer device. We're talking about consumer. Well, this devices. is this is first of all this is the developer version of it. Okay, the developer version. So this might be a little more expensive. So yes. thinking about and how again, we just talked about how a thousand four hundred Canadian dollars is not going to, which is what like three American you dollars this one? is yeah. not going to get you a VR ready rig or an AR ready rig even. So we're definitely looking at more than that. I don't know two thousand dollars. Is a three thousand dollar machine. <laughs> That you're buying now, really, a thousand dollars of which is the computer, and two thousands is Conquer. Yeah, it's true. Young, young, Conquer, Conquer, young Conquer, Conquer's worth it. Who hasn't been in a video game? His, since. I mean, his look, his 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 hot record. And he didn't get the Grammys, nope. but but Kendrick really owes a lot to uh, to <laughs> young, young Conquer. Conquer. Young Conquer, young Conquer, who hasn't been in a video game since two thousand and I want to say five. Which was a remake of an N64 game. Yes. That came out in 1990. Conquer's Bad Fur Day. Conquer's Bad Fur Day. Which is Conquer's not a Bad good Bad video Fur Day game. Live and Reloaded. Also not a good game. No. People like Conquer, you were all babies. Yes. Like the. Uh, no, that's a bad game. He's, he's literally the worst character. He, the whole deal was that he was a cute mascot, except he wasn't because he, he swore, swore. And, and his... he was gritty. Yeah. The other big thing about this is that there have been rumors, reports going around, rather, that the HoloLens has a really narrow field of view, uh, which reduces what you can actually see augmented to a tiny box in the center of your vision. So if you imagine, for example, you see all of this studio in front of you, and I were, like Conker was walking here, you would only see Conker in sort of a square in the middle, standing right here. But if you were to look too high, you wouldn't see Conker's feet anymore beneath you. You would just sort of see the microphone again. That sucks. Yeah. Okay, well. Now, this might be a better version, this developer-friendly version. It could be improved from the the uh, E3 prototype. I, the E3 prototype looked pretty early. And also, apparently, like, the, like, we've heard reports of it getting very hot and yes. like overloading. <laughs> and melting people's faces. Yeah, so that's a risk. Um, um, but- also, not shipping with Hollow Minecraft. No, which we thought would be a big appeal. Although they did reveal today that apparently there are new combat mechanics are adding to, to mm, Minecraft. That's true. That's a that's a maybe that's in the works. It could be along with everything else. The uh, speaking of things that get in your face, give it up for your favorite fighting elf man. Yep. Because uh, Ubisoft is in the news. Yeah. So let's uh, sharpen. Should... Let's sharpen the points of our ears. Yeah. <laughs> let let Ishitaro drop from the ceiling, um, because joining yes. us this week is uh, Yves Guillemot, who is a definite real man and has definitely met our prime minister. Yeah. So according to the Golden Mail's Nicholas Van Preet, the uh, games elf himself, Yves Guillemot, is seeking investors to help him fend off a hostile takeover attempt by Vivendi. So uh, Vivendi chairman Vincent Bolaire, who, um, who has bought up 15% of Ubisoft shares and has made a 50 mil- 500 million euro offer to buy Gameloft, which has turned out to also be run by the Gimo clan. There's actually four of them. Yeah. The four Gimos. The four Gimos. The four Gimo siblings? Yes. Brothers, mm-hmm. I believe. Okay. So, European analysts told Van Praet that the Gameloft bid is part of Vivendi's plan to force the Gimos to a negotiation table and talk Ubi- and talk a takeover of Ubisoft by the French multi-billion super org. Yeah, so the interesting thing about 
Vivendi is that they used to be in the games. Yes. They used to be a pretty major developer, although it was usually through a sub-brand or something, but it was like... Vivendi Games owned Sierra for a while. They owned yeah. Activision Blizzard for a long time. Yeah, before they were kicked out by... Uh, some Somehow kicked out by Bobby Kotick. Yeah, Bobby Kotick like, organized a shareholder buyback for 68.2% of the company. Which is insane. I mean, they managed to just... They got out of the industry eventually entirely. Yeah, well, no, uh, I think they still own about a 5% stake in well, Ubisoft yeah. and now a, a 15%... A 15% Ubisoft and 6% stake in uh, uh, Activision. Activision Blizzard. Just known as Activision again, I think. Nope, still Activision Blizzard. Oh, they still yep, Activision? They're still Activision? Okay, cool. Um, so Vivendi apparently wants to get back in the game because they want to be able to market their... Because they still own significant properties. They have UMG. They have Universal Media Group or Music Group. They have Canal Plus. Yeah, I mean, those are that's a music station. And that's a record label and a television channel. Well, Canal Plus does movies. Oh, right, you're right. Canal Plus is a, is a movie production house. Uh, so, I mean, and they, they, just, they, they, but they mostly do, like, semi-art films, like, lowbrow art films. I'm just totally wondering, because I remember Vivendi Games being, like, occasionally good, but mostly, like, trash. Like, yeah, yeah I, I don't, I think they just sort of want to make the Ubisoft money. Yeah, I, that's, that's all is what it seems like. So, the way that they're trying to fend off this is trying to get some investments from the Quebec and, uh, federal government here in Canada. Uh, Ubisoft has, um... Ubisoft uh, has been leading basically Ubisoft executives to various investors in Montreal and Toronto because they have one massive studio here in Toronto, Ubisoft Toronto, and a massive studio in Montreal. Yeah, you know, and they have is, one more in Quebec City. Yeah, and those are sort of those three are kind of primarily responsible for their biggest games. Yeah, uh, Assassin's Creed, Far Cry. Toronto is doing a lot of like little work on all big projects, but the uh, Montreal and Quebec have routinely gone back and forth on uh, leading the Assassin's Creed games. Yeah. So there's sort of the and and Gimo kind of told the Mail that while Vivendi isn't likely to shut down those Canadian branches, the studios are safest if the company is run independently. Which I mean, it's kind of a threat. It's kind of like a they don't really know that. No. All they know is like Canadian uh, taxes. Are, the reason that can the Ubisoft is over here is because Canadian taxes are way better than French taxes. Yep. So it's way better to do a lot of their operations out of Quebec, where the language is very similar. It's French. It's, French. it's literally it's similar. French. Yeah. It's uh It's weirdly comparable. Yeah. <laughs> uh it's uh yeah, the same language and they have a similar culture, so why yeah. not? Absolutely. Um Nobody Ubi- looks at his funny ears v- and laughs at him. Very little actually comes out of Ubisoft Paris. Yeah, basically nothing. Like the they're, they're mostly art- just the development studio. Like the, the rather the executive side of things. And they have um their one development studio in the south of France, I think, which is yeah, the stuff the, that they do the arts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They have one out in London also, but that most of their stuff is like Shanghai. Uh, which does component stuff. There's one in Brazil, and there's these three the Canadian, in Canada yeah, that Canada. do a ton. Yeah. Um, quote, we want to increase the number of Canadian shareholders in Ubisoft to have better control over the capital. We feel it is a good defense. Uh, Ubisoft is also apparently looking for backing from the Quebec government, and Guimau has met with Premier Philippe Couillard recently. Yeah. Um, I mean, that the, the idea of government funding being a big theme in Quebec recently that with uh, Bombardier yep. and them selling off their bunch of their their I'm sure uh, Quebec would, is relatively interested Vivendi I can't actually see them like screwing of that too much because right. like, they wouldn't touch it the thing for Vivendi is that like if it's a hostile takeover without the Gimos behind it I feel like a bunch of executives would leave yeah well they but, would lose a lot of upper tier talent but maybe not like development staff and the problem is like what has been like this would be a, a bigger deal to me if Ubisoft had done anything unique in the past five yeah, years. Yeah, exactly, right? Like, who are they going to lose? Like, you can always cookie-cutter out an Assassin's Creed game. Yeah, like, at some point, the, the Assassin's Creed game, the most innovative thing they did this year um, is that they decided not to make one. Yeah. Like, that's the, that's the biggest decision. But hey, Watch Dogs 2. Yep. Yeah. 
Watch Sucks too. Ah, oh, that game's gonna be trash. Yeah. Prove me wrong, Ubisoft. I'm <laughs> like, Vivendi, happy to be Ubisoft argues that Vivendi's properties are limiting to them. Probably, I, I, the only thing like they don't really do a lot of partnerships. Yeah, I guess maybe like UMG, like they could only use UMG music for Just Dance, but like the only ar- real argument I have against like Vivendi because like companies buy other companies all the time and it kind of sucks. But like when it comes to Vivendi, it just they're a media conglomerate, and it'd be bad to have more media concentration. Yeah, but otherwise, I, it's like, I don't know if there's... like yeah, don't, don't Ubisoft like is, sh- like, the third biggest developer at this yeah, point, like, the I publisher. Yves Gimo just wants to make more money. Yeah. That's really what's happening here. But, like, French co- all French companies must be controlled by a larger, scarier French company at some point, right? Yeah. Like, that's <laughs> how it works. Yeah, and, like, I'm, I'm not totally convinced that, like, you, what Ubisoft does couldn't have been totally saved by... Uh, Vivendi, because it's like it's not like like it'd be one thing if like oh it's EA yeah. and also like Vivendi is not like Vivendi runs things into the ground they just sort of let them exist. Yeah, I mean like there was a, the reason that the board kicked them out was because they had um, that Vivendi had some like weird interference on like the way they wanted to um, po- uh, develop games and yeah. apparently it was too uh, it was detrimental with the company's line. So maybe like there are some lessons to take out of the Activision Blizzard thing where mm. they they were forced out and they were making because they were making bad decisions. But at the same time, it's like. Um, like, uh, what what would we lose? Like, I'm I'm yeah. trying to think here. Like, you're not going to put those studios back in France. Yeah. There's no like Vivendi doesn't own any other game studios at the moment, so it's not like you can consolidate and say like, oh yeah, we're cutting all these businesses because who needs these guys? Like you, it's a like I can't imagine anyone making an Assassin's Creed game without the Ubisoft system. It's basically an insane program where yeah. they outsource all of their games to every other developer they own. Like, uh, it's just that I. I'm I'm really interested to see how Ubisoft justifies itself yeah. to continue existing and what they do to kind of keep uh, keep themselves forward. I'd be interested to see if the the Canadian government, in any form, whether it's a provincial or federal level, does start investing in Ubisoft. And at what point does it just start being like a straight up Canadian entity? At what point does Ubisoft start having to make Assassin's Creed games about the War of eighteen twelve? Yeah, no, totally. At what point? At what point are the Canadian heritage moments Assassin's Creed games, like little Assassin's Creed mini games that you play? Yeah. Can we get that music playing in the background here? That's public domain, right? (laughs) I heard that a lot in middle school. You've been listening to Built to Play. I'm Arbor Bali. And I'm Dana Rosen. And for this next segment, we're going to look at the way we remember playing a video game. A game Dan and I both played growing up was Final Fantasy VII. If you talk to people who got into playing video games around the 90s or early aughts, that's a common story. It's the best known of the Final Fantasy series, a very long-running role-playing game franchise. Uh, you know this part already. Uh, look, check out our summary of every Final Fantasy game that we bother to cover on the site. It's a thing we did. It's like three episodes long and five hours. Right. So to get into this story, all you really need to know is that Final Fantasy VII is super, super popular. It's so popular that they're apparently remaking the whole thing later. But it's also a hard game to go back. Alex Michel gave us a pretty good summary of the experience. He's one of the editors of the Arcade Review magazine. You know, I, pl- I probably played it for like 100 hours or whatever when I was a teenager. I remember some t- like sometimes I'd actually wake up early before school, like level my guys a little bit before I started, I started playing. I would come back to it every now and then um, just because I like how goofy it looks, I guess, and to try to sort of remember what it was like. 
playing it at that time in my life. I, I can't I can't say why exactly besides like a feeling of uh, kind of comfort or or nostalgia, though I'm not a huge fan of nostalgia uh, as a motivator for doing things. You know, it's kind of a conservative way of approaching life, I think. I had a similar experience playing the game as a kid, even though I was still in elementary school. And by that point, the game had to have been out for at least five years. I knew about it from the older kids who would talk about it as this amazing thing they played several years ago. I saved up about $45 to play it secondhand from a store, and then I inched through it half hour by half hour I could spare before school started. Which is the kind of thing you do as a kid. You just have this abundant free time to play 100-hour-long games, and when you play a game for that long, it has to leave some kind of an impression, which might be why Alex kept going back to it. But playing through Final Fantasy VII now is crazy. You might remember it as a flash of cool moments, but it's definitely not how it's made. Unless you have access to a debug room. Another problem was when I would try to go back and play it, um, I would never be able to like sustain play, uh, play sessions for very long because it would get so tedious and mundane. Um, and I kind of wanted to just jump around and watch specific scenes or like look at specific places in the world or listen to specific parts of the, the you know the game music. And the debug room lets you do that, but. Um, it's also really like mysterious and like counterintuitive, at least to me. A debug room is a place that game designers go to in order to modify parts of the game world. It's a collection of cheat codes. You can switch characters, change the game logic, whatever the designer needs to check if a specific part of the game is working. Want to know if a certain boss fight goes the way you planned? Enter the right sequence of moves and you'd be flashed to that point in the game. But a debug room is often a real place, not just a password or a couple of button presses. The player has to get to the debug room somehow, and then interact with objects or characters inside the room to trigger the event. In Final Fantasy VII, the debug room has no real entrance. It exists in the world, but it's separate from every other point on the map. Meaning, you need to break in with a program that allows you to appear at any point in the game world. Once inside, Alex could play the game a little like how he remembered it. A series of kind of flashy, cool moments with some connecting thread. If he had any idea how to use it. When I go into the, into the debug room, I don't even see like the stuff that was like in the Japanese version of it. They they have kind of like labels of, of uh, different designers and these symbols on the floor, so it actually looks like an actual room in the Japanese version. In the PC port, that stuff doesn't show up, so you just have all these character models kind of hovering in this uh, black space. And you, uh, it's not really clear what anything does. You walk up to it, to them, and some of it's in English, and some of it's in Japanese, and some of it's just kind of a jumble of numbers. You have like different character models standing, like standing next to each other. Like you'll have three Barretts uh, standing next to two Tifas, and they'll be wearing like outfits from different places in the game. You're, but the way you kind of describe it, it's like someone took all of. All of the dolls that make up all the, the action that happens in Final Fantasy VII and just place it all in one room for you kind of to poke at. Yeah, like a little, like a weird, like surreal dollhouse. Well, the first thing I tried to do, obviously, was go straight to the end. Like, go from beginning to end where I'm like level one and I'm like fighting uh, Sephiroth at the end. So I, I did that a couple of times and then I died. And then I found the character where you can put people in your party. And I put Vincent in my party. He's um, a vampire werewolf thing. Yeah, vampire werewolf. He's got the gun. Cool character. Uh, so 
you if you put him in your party and try to go fight with him, you haven't like triggered the flag in the game that says that you're supposed to have Vincent. So the first thing the game does is it assigns Sephiroth's level um, and stats to Vincent because they're like, I don't know, they're like in the same place in the game's memory or something or they're next to each other. But then if you're in a battle, the game knows that Sephiroth isn't supposed to be at that point in the game either. So it just kind of kills the character off before the, before the battle even starts. So it's weird how the, how the game like has these rules for operation to where some can be exploited and broken, but some can't. Some are hard rules, like physics or gravity or something. But then once that was sorted, he started doing what he actually wanted. He played the greatest hits of Final Fantasy VII. And it did make a lick of sense. Oh, like I went straight to the end, beat the final boss, watched the final cutscenes. I wandered around, talked to some of the characters. By using the debug room, has the game, does the game ever risk kind of turning into a funhouse mirror version of itself? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's the appeal. Um, I think it already is that. <laughs> um, if you think about, like, if you try to, like, think about what you remember about that story, um, like, there there are these interesting moments of kind of, they're, uh, they're kind of, like, they're sort of, like, environmental activists. They're, anti, um, they're anti-capitalist and anti-establishment and stuff. Um, but it's like it's dragged out over these like all like these like thousands of little mundane moments. So to me, the debug room is kind of clarifying like what the game actually means to me, I guess. I think it helped me like articulate how we how we like remember these games and how we tend to like kind of idealize them. So like when I go back and play Final Fantasy VII, it's because it 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 would there's some there's some like memory that I'm trying to recapture, trying to recreate that is not actually embodied in the game itself. Um, it seems like the idealized version of like one of these games that we, we remember has like all of the tedium kind of cut out of the experience. Um, there's just kind of these these floating like images of characters in our heads like mixed with kind of uh, emotions that we were experiencing at the time and actually going and actually like playing the game doesn't recapture that in any significant way. I don't, I don't think um, even though it's kind of sold to us that, that that can happen, you know, they made a final fantasy seven remake, right. Um, in HD. So kind of now all the, like all the block are all of our blocky abstract, imaginings of these characters will be finally rendered in full like in more pixels or, or whatever it, it helped me figure out like what uh how these things like appeal to us and it's not like it's not like wandering around in the in the debug room like recaptured that moment in time either it's kind of like looking at your own memory like from the outside in it felt kind of like that to me if you've ever tried to like write like write a, a small story about your childhood or something, um, for uh, I don't I don't know what what like remembering your childhood is like for you, but it's really difficult for me. Like I can't. It's really hard to conjure up specific images or moments um, or environments a lot of the time. Um, there are just these like really thin moments, kind of hovering, like 
with a lot of distance between each other. I don't know. It's hard to describe. Um, but the, this, like these debug rooms, I, they 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 feel like that in video game form to me. Alex Pichel is the editor of the Arcade Review. We got in touch with Alex because of an essay he wrote called A Review of a Debug Room in Final Fantasy VII. We'll have a link in our show notes. So, the next game we're going to talk about is Pony Island. And if you don't know about this game already, I bet you think you know what it is. And you're probably wrong, but hold on to that impression. It'll be helpful for the next part. Because we're going to guide you through it. So let's just assume you're already at your computer. Just double-click the icon on your desktop. Yeah, it looks a little childish, but just wait for the pony jumping over to sunset to appear. Then you got to check the options to make sure it looks right on your screen. Ignore the worn-looking Pony Island ticket. Just click New Game and wait for the game to load again into what looks like a dusty CRT monitor from the early 80s. So that's when the new menu should show up, and it's going to ask you to click the Start Game button again. Right, that didn't work. Let's check the Options menu. Anti-aliasing, Cheerful Facade, Advanced RNG. Ah, yes, Fix Start Menu. Darn, okay, looks like the back button literally fell off the screen. So just put it back and click Free Ticket for Good Measure. No, I mean drag the button into that spot. Okay, good, good, that should fix it. Yeah, alright, so cool. We should be good to start now for sure. So click Start Game. Oh, Dark game disappeared into a blob of pixels. Uh, that's okay. Look, that's supposed to happen. We're we're on the right track. Yeah, we can fix it with just a, a little hacking. Just fix up the logic gate with some duct tape. Look, we can even do it for you. Now the game is finally getting started. That's the loading screen, along with a helpful message from the game's designer. You just had to fix it, didn't you? It was going to work. It's almost time to play. Welcome to Pony Island. From here, all you have to do is jump over the same poles over and over again, get to level 80, sacrifice your soul, and try to escape your eternal torment. Which may or may not have been where you thought you would end up playing a game called Pony Island. According to designer Daniel Mullins, that's exactly how you're supposed to feel. A little lost, but curious for what comes next. The funny thing about what you just described is that, like, none of that is advertised on the box, of the, the theoretical box. Uh, yeah. um, but the, uh, and it's a lot of the reviews and a lot of the, the, the discussion of it has been kind of like, I can't tell you anything about this game and I'm not really going to tell you, but you should maybe try it out. Um, yeah. And you see this a lot with like games like The Witness or Frog Fractions. Why do you mm -hmm. think there's an attraction to games like this that we can't really talk about? Um, I think... I think uh, just having like a curiosity about a game is like uh, a really exciting factor. Like um, I think that's why indie games in general are so successful and nowadays and, and uh, so appealing is that like you don't know exactly what you're getting going in. Um, and with something like a AAA shooter or something, um, you kind of know exactly what you're getting. So it's kind of a nice contrast to that. The game kind of does rely on bellying your expectations of how a program should work just mm -hmm. on a basic level um what do you think are expectations of how like when i approach a piece of software what do you think the expectations are whether it's a game or not uh well i guess the first uh, expectation that i kind of uh, mess with is that well when i hit a button it's going to do what i think it's going to do like right off the bat uh, you kind of just immediately expect start game to, you know, start the game. And in Pony Island, it doesn't. And then you start digging around um, for how to fix that. And then even the back button, 
uh, when you hit that, it falls off its hinge. And it, I think that really um, sets the stage for the rest of the game. Playing the actual game within Pony Island is pretty boring, which is why you spend very little time doing it. Instead, you're solving puzzles using elements around the game itself. So you physically break menus. You find clues hidden in parts of the chat, and every so often you hack the game. Obviously, the hacking is metaphoric. What you're actually doing is finding the right arrangement for directions for pretend code to follow. It's kind of like logic gates. The computer is implementing this fake code blindly, so you have to jump in to say go forward or jump to this other part of the screen. So when you're not playing Pony Island, you're actually kind of being like a detective, one that does have to be quick on their feet. It was almost like covering the game's weaknesses in a bit. Like, uh, I thought the best parts of the game were the abstract parts where you're you're kind of stumbling through broken menus and stuff, but there just wasn't enough of that content to really like create this full uh, kind of like two or three hour experience I wanted. And um, to kind of cover that up, I needed, I guess, uh, other things to do because I couldn't I couldn't come up with enough of these abstract uh, menu puzzles. So that was kind of where the need for the other two um, gameplay pillars being the code and the jumping. And I guess uh, the distribution of them, I wanted to be fairly even to kind of um, give you, each one would kind of give you a break from the other uh, type of gameplay. And Pony Island is a little like a translation of another activity the game touches on. Programming, specifically the process of debugging or fixing broken code. Which, as a programmer himself, Daniel has a lot of experience with. In actually trying to do like programming, mm-hmm. how often do you come across instances where it's like you, there is a mystery to solving an actual puzzle and like why, why isn't oh. this working like it, it needs to? Yeah, I think that's like a, a huge part of programming. Like um, kind of like the aspect of debugging is usually like you're kind of a detective. The hardest part of debugging is usually not fixing the bug, it's finding out what the bug is and how to cause it. Um, so I think that computer programming is definitely, like a lot of the times, it feels like a, a sequence of puzzles. When he worked at Skybox Labs in Vancouver, there was one mystery he remembers pretty clearly. Skybox has done a lot of updates for old games, including Grandia 2 Anniversary. Why Skybox wanted to revive a role-playing game from the year 2000 is an unknowable enigma. But Grandia 2 is a 100-hour Dreamcast game that Skybox wanted to bring to Windows. And no matter what they did, it just wouldn't show up on their screens. So... When how quickly did you guys know that this thing was like oh this is gonna be this is gonna be an interesting job? <laughs> I think that was before I was actually put on the project. Um, we had a, a more senior engineer do like a full investigation of the old code base, and uh, he came back with the news that this was probably gonna be pretty difficult. <laughs> it was written in a, an older language, and it was written for the the Sega Dreamcast. And we're trying to take that and then make it work on uh, modern-day PCs. And there's just a slew of issues, mostly relating to the different architecture of the uh, platform. So it was like you you basically had to kind of translate from one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then and then on top of that, like I mentioned, um, uh, the original programs were Japanese, and some of them spoke English. Uh, you could tell, but um, I think all of them it was their second language. So. Uh, like all the comments in the code were uh, translated from Japanese and we used, we just ran it through a translator. So it was you'd look at a, a section of code and you'd see a comment that was supposed to describe it and it probably did describe it in Japanese, but after the translation, it, it just made it even more confusing. Was there any comment that like really threw you off while going through that? <laughs> so I kept a little 
a collection of screen. Whenever I found a funny thing that the translator had done, I would screenshot it and put it in a little collection. Uh, I think the funniest one I found that was kind of like throughout the project was the main character of Grandia 2 is named Ryudo. And for some reason that translates to babes. So everywhere, all over the code base, it just said babes this, babes that, everything babes. <laughs> that was probably the funniest one. It, it was too bad because I guess I missed a lot of the cathartic moments because I was pulled off halfway through. Uh, but there were like some pretty, there was definitely a lot of like moments of elation when I was on it. Like when we finally got the uh, black screen to actually show <laughs> graphics and it was actually a video game <laughs> after like a month of work. And that was pretty good. That was probably the best feeling I had from the project. So the first month of working on that, you were, it was just a black yep. screen at all you could render. Yep. It was pretty, pretty terrible. Pretty demoralizing when you, you, when, like I said, like uh, debugging is like solving puzzles and you're, you're snooping out these bugs, fixing them and your reward is just 10 more bugs and a black screen. So what, what did it take to actually get the graphics to go? If you could... Uh, well, so we did have a rendering guy that wasn't entirely my domain, um, but basically what he was doing was um, everywhere in the code that was saying like Dreamcast, render this, like Dreamcast, uh, give me this texture. Uh, well, there was no Dreamcast, so we had to kind of like um, create like a virtual Dreamcast, almost like an emulator in, in the back end to answer these calls, and I guess that's that's what he was doing. What what was there a moment of catharsis at all through your portion of the project? I think yeah, definitely that moment where we got um, the screen like showing graphics, and then later on, um, like I, I had to use YouTube videos of the game to compare to what I should be seeing. Um, so like when I first got the uh, the intro cutscene playing, and it looked exactly like the uh, YouTube video, that was pretty exciting too. Right, right. So. Pony Island seems like a lot more fun than that. It was, yep, quite a bit more. And then in terms of like how the game actually works, like did you did you take any of the experience of like the the puzzle solving and say like mm -hmm. this might make for a good thing to have in like a yeah, game? Yeah, I actually did like the like the code puzzles like I mentioned, but I think there were a few like while the rendering was coming together on Grandia, um, there were a few like graphical bugs that we were seeing, and I think. Um, I did take a few of them away as inspiration because they, they looked like kind of cool bugs that I could use in Pony Island. All right. I'd like to thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much. Daniel Mullins is the creator of Pony Island and is based in Vancouver. Pony Island is available where locally sourced video games are grown. From CGRU, this has been Built to Play. I'm Arnick Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Luke Whittaker. Daniel Fountain. Alex Pichel and Daniel Mullins. You can follow us on Twitter at built to play or visit our website builttoplay.ca where we have things you can read, probably. You can also find us on Facebook. Uh, you can follow me personally at Twitter. That's uh, F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. And remember, we never found the Zodiac Killer. You don't know who it could be. Thank you so much for listening. They did start before Ted Cruz was born, though. I'm not...